John 19, verse 16. So they handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Father, I pray that you would speak to us yet again by your Spirit through your Word this morning. Take us to that place, Lord. And may we, Father, take this personally today. And Lord, I I pray that you will uh, remove any unwelcome or unfamiliar spirits from among us. And that we would only hear the voice of the Spirit of the living God clearly as you reveal to us these things. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did. Thank you for what you bore on the cross at Calvary. Lord Jesus, for the excruciating pain that you suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually for the weight that you bore on your shoulders. Truly, each and every one of us come to you and we are eternally thankful. There can be no end to the thanksgiving, to the gratefulness that we have for what you did. Lord Jesus, the equivalent of billions of years into eternity will not be enough for us ever to forget that we are with you because of what you did at Calvary. That our lives go on with you in heaven forever because of the cross. And because your love was so great, your passion so deep, your faithfulness so true, that you did everything necessary once and for all to bring salvation to a very dark and lost world. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, for revelation this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, I'll just read this to you. Jesus made a very familiar statement to many of you. He said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, most of us take that as an implied statement, as a metaphor of sorts, that we're not actually to drag a cross around every day, but that we are to take up whatever challenges, struggles, uh, persecutions we might face because of Jesus, and walk for Him, walk with Him, follow after Him. And yet, it hasn't been that way for Arthur Blessed. It's been a literal situation for him. In 1968, on the Sunset Strip of West Hollywood, California, a young street evangelist named Arthur Blessed opened a Jesus coffee house. 
It was his response to all the coffee houses and places opening up there in Hollywood at the time. And he opened up right next to a topless go-go club, which has gone gone since. And in that coffee house, he would invite people to come in, have a cup of joe, and talk Jesus. And he would spend his days there. He hung up on the wall a large 12-foot cross. And every evening at closing time, he removed the cross from the wall, put it on his shoulder, and dragged it down the street to his apartment where he was living. Needless to say, it was a conversation starter. That Arthur would take that cross and talk to people as he left and as he came back. Christmas Day, 1969, Jesus called him to take up that cross and walk across America. And so he did. He crossed the country state by state, went through America, and then he kept going. Better than Forrest Gump, he didn't just go from one corner of the country back and forth to the other. Arthur Blessed began to travel to other countries. He kept going and going. To date, he's covered more than 41,323 miles bearing that cross. He's gone through 324 nations, island groups, and territories covering the span of the entire earth, 54 of which were in open war as he dragged that cross along the countryside. He's been on every continent on the face of the earth. He's been arrested 24 times. He has been stood before a firing squad once before being released. He's still walking, still taking the message of the cross around the world. He realized something, learned something early on that you and I might be wise to consider, and that is that the cross of Jesus Christ changes the conversation. If you ever find yourself in a religious confrontation or a faith system confrontation with someone and you're having challenges and disagreements and the person is is coming against your faith, your Christian background, perhaps your heritage or your understanding, bring them to the cross. It changes the conversation. It instantly makes everything different. We need to understand 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the conversation we need to have. When you talk about sharing the gospel, it's not just talking about the coffee and muffins that you have at church. It's not just saying God is good and will make your life happy. The message of the gospel is the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, there is no gospel. Without the cross, there is no hope. And without the cross, there is no conversation. But understand the cross is foolishness to the intellectual, to the philosopher. The cross is an affront to the religious. Because the cross impacts and affects people at the deepest place of the heart. Either drawing you to the Lord or or making you uh, worried, fearful of the Lord. But the cross is at issue. Some might say, what good is your religious symbol when the bullets started flying at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston? What good is your cross then? What relevance 
is the cross in times like these. First of all, you need to understand, the cross is far more than a religious symbol. As a matter of fact, in the first two centuries of the church, the cross was forbidden to be used as art. They couldn't even imagine it. Far too many Christians were throughout those years, those couple of centuries, being crucified themselves. I mean, it would be sick to put something like that on a toga. You know, to wear it around your neck as, as, a, as a symbol. Or to get it tattooed on your body of all things for the first couple of centuries. The leaders in the early church said, no symbology of the cross. Which is why even in archaeology, we don't really see it showing up until the Byzantine era. It just wasn't heard of. But the cross continues, even today, 2,000 years later, to be profoundly relevant. Way beyond necklaces, t-shirts, and tattoos. And if you have one of those things, I'm not condemning you, I'm not getting down on you, I'm just saying stop for a moment and think about what you're wearing. Consider what it is that it means. I've shared before, it would be unthinkable to walk around with a little electric chair tattooed on your shoulder. But it's the same representation. And to Jesus and the early church, the cross was death. And not just death, but brutal death, unlike any death that had yet been conceived. It was a death that was supposed to take place, not just for a matter of hours, but a matter of days. Bringing unbelievable, excruciating suffering. Years ago, our brother Russ mentioned in a communion message, and I never forgot it, Russ, he mentioned the word excruciating comes from crucis, cross. That's where it gets its, its, its beginning. Because the cross itself was the most brutal, excruciating method of execution ever devised. And the Romans used it. But we understand today, 1 John Chapter 4, verse 9 says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That is, seen among us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Though you might, that's not the expression of love. But that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The absolute, the total, the complete cleansing. Of our sins and unrighteousness and wickedness and evil and wrong thoughts and wrongdoing. The cross. You cannot look into the bloodied, battered, bruised face of Jesus Christ and say, God is unaware. Or God doesn't care about what's going on in this world. So this morning we're going to take a walk through John's account of the actual crucifixion of Jesus to his final breath. And the timing is right for the answer to the pain and the suffering and the brutality of a darkening world is right here. Let's draw back a little bit to verse 8. We already got a little bit into this on Wednesday night as we were talking about Jesus being taken before Pilate. He has now been scourged. He's been beaten. Pilate is trying to humiliate him, actually to to get him off, to, to let him off of the sentence, to have him released. Because he sees no wrongdoing in Jesus whatsoever. He realizes this is an innocent man. Something completely unright is going on here. But it's more than that. He had just heard the Jews say he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And in verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more 
afraid. Here's a man who had been questioning, who had looked into his eyes, who had been talking to, and he recognized his absolute innocence, but now he hears this man is making him out to himself out to be equal with God. And it freaks Pilate out. He is shaken in his toga. He is in over his head. He is way, this one, this situation is way above the procurator's pay grade. And that's the first thing to note in what happens when Jesus comes before Pilate is he begins to understand this one is bigger than he is. This is a a huge situation. Note this, the pay grade. To make matters worse for Pilate, his wife just sent him a text. Matthew 27, 19. That said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. You want to get out of this one, hubby. This is the wrong case to be involved in. Verse 19 tells us, he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? He's not asking for a street address. He's not saying, where do you hail from there in the Galilee? What he's saying is, what is the real deal with you? Because you've got the Jewish leaders completely freaked out, and obviously you've done nothing wrong, but now they're saying, you say you're God? Where are you from? What's up? What's going on here? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? What Pilate didn't realize in that moment, in that situation, was he had zero authority, that Jesus had all authority and was seeing through what he was bound and determined to accomplish. Don't you realize I can make or break this situation? I can let you off or I can send you to the cross. Don't you get that? Jesus answered, verse 11, You would have no authority over me except unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. I told you last week I would explain that comment. What this means is Pilate really didn't know what he was up against. Pilate really didn't understand fully what he was doing in this judgment on Jesus. Judas did. Judas made the choice. Pilate was in over his head, above his pay grade. Judas dove into this head first. Pilate was the procurator, the governor. Judas was the betrayer. And so Jesus says very clearly, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Greater is the sin always of the one who deliberately betrays. Now we like to say in in the church, and perhaps you've heard, that all sins equal before the Lord, that no sin is worse than another sin. Kind of makes us feel better if we're a really bad sinner. Well, I'm not as bad as the kid who lied about the donuts, you know. I'm, I'm, says the guy who's stoned out of his mind having just murdered somebody. I mean, it's all sin, right? And are there levels of sin? And we can debate and talk about that. But Jesus says very clearly there was one greater sin here. Greater is the sin of the one who deliberately handed him over. The sin of Judas, the calculating, intentional sin of Judas was greater than the sin that Pilate's about to commit and his involvement in this whole thing. Pilate's sin? Oh yeah. Both Judas and Pilate are complicit in the death of Christ. So are you. So am I. 
It was our sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. He Himself, Peter writes, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. I sent Him to the cross. You sent Him to the cross. And by the way, your personal pay grade doesn't matter an ounce. There's not a one among us who makes enough to secure a seat in heaven. Nobody makes that kind of money. Nobody has that kind of an intrinsic value in them. Jesus paid it all. And the question is whether or not you'll accept that. Well, verse 12, continuing on. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. In Hebrew, Gabbatha. Why does John, in the midst of telling the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the most critical story in history, why does he step aside for two verses to point out the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew Aramaic word for pavement? Who cares, John? The Greek word for pavement is lithostratus. The lithostratus. And it was that area where Pilate would come out and make judgments. Lithostratus literally means, translated into our language, mosaic. Because it was probably a mosaic floor with artistic renderings in it. There are those who say because it was a mosaic floor, because there were images and artistic renderings in it, that it was abhorrent to the Jews. It had images, right? You shall not make a graven image. And so there it is on the floor, the lithostratus, and the Jews wouldn't walk up to it or stand on it because of that reason. The Hebrew, actually it's it's Aramaic, it was kind of street Hebrew here, but the Aramaic word that John points out is Gabbatha, which means the elevation seat. Now the reason I pause to point this out is that the actual Hebrew word for pavement that is that parallels the, the Aramaic Gabbatha and the Greek lithostratus is used one time in the Bible. Other than being indicated right here, the Hebrew word is used in the Older Testament, 2 Kings 16, verse 17. Let me read it to you. King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands, and he removed the labor from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement, pavement, a gabatha, a lithostratus of stone. That's the only other mention in the entire Bible about this pavement. So we get Pilate on the pavement, the lithostratus, the gabatha, and we have King Ahaz, wicked, evil King Ahaz, on the pavement as well. What's going on with Ahaz? Well, he was doing a little temple remodel. He was doing it to please and appease the Assyrian king. You could say King Ahaz was a real Tiglath pleaser. (laughs) Sorry. Tiglath-Pileser III was the king of the Assyrians at the time of Ahaz, and so he was seeking to appease this king. And that's how you can remember it, Tiglath-Pileser. I thought that was really funny, but that's just me. John uses the same parallel word for pavement. The lithostratus, the gabatha. 
That pavement that, that Ahaz changed, altered there in the temple area. Now Pilate comes out on the pavement and begins to render judgment against the Son of God, against Jesus Christ. And Strong says in Ahaz's case, his act was the conclusive token of his surrender to apostasy. So here, Pilate comes down to the level of the apostate Jews. In Ahaz's case, a Jewish ruler was dominated by a Gentile idolater. In Pilate's case, a Gentile idolater is now dominated by Jews who have rejected their own Messiah. And it's an interesting parallel between the two. But understand that there on the pavement, the lithostratus, Pilate pronounced judgment on Jesus. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour or 6 a.m. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. He had just earlier back in verse 5 said, Behold the man. If you were here Wednesday night, you know the reason he said that was he had just had Jesus beaten within an inch of his life. He had the scourge applied to Jesus' back. Beatings to the face. The Bible tells us that he was beaten unrecognizable. And Pilate brought him out that first time and said, Behold the man. Behold the man. What threat, what danger. Come on, let him go. He's had enough for the day. Hoping that it would appease the Jews at that time. It didn't. They continue to call for his execution, call for his crucifixion. And now Pilate brings him back out to the pavement. And he says to the Jews, and no doubt Pilate was getting in a little dig here, Behold your king. And so they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, And we have clarity here, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to be crucified. And the timing of all this was perfect. You see, that very afternoon, by the time Jesus got to the cross, the sacrifices were already underway. As we talked about last week, upwards of 256,000 lambs were slaughtered in the temple on Passover. And while all of that slaughter is going on and the blood is flowing in the temple, just north of there, outside the city, in a place called the Place of the Skull, Christ our Passover gave every last drop of His blood in the final Passover, the final concluding sacrifice, the place of the skull. If you're tracking along, that's our third point. The place of the skull, verse 17. So they took Jesus therefore, and He went out, bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified Him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Do you realize that Jesus is the only one who stands in between you and utter condemnation? He is the only one who can be the go-between, the mediator, the intercessor. There is no hope outside of Jesus. For all the other religions of the world, for all the other ideologies and offerings that are out there, only Jesus stands between. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And so even these two thieves on either side and Jesus in the middle among the thieves being crucified at the place of the skull. 
place of the skull, that rocky hillside. That rocky outcropping, and because of its caves and crevices, it looks like a skull. Even today, and some of you have seen it up close. You can get pictures of it. It's, it's remarkable. That even after two millennia, we look at this place and we see the skull. There on the side of the hill, Golgotha. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through, man, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the world's greatest minds, gang, are Golgotha, their empty skulls. The greatest philanthropists on the planet end up with vacant craniums. The most powerful world leaders, hollow boneheads. That's where we end up. Golgotha. Place of the skull. A fitting place to die. Hold that thought in your noggin. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription. Put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What's the difference? You Bible students know. What he wrote there in the Hebrew, Yeshua, Ha-Nazarim, Vomelech, Ha-Yeshua, Ha Yehuda. Let me say that again. Yeshua, Ha Nazarin, Vamalek, Ha Yehuda. And the first letter in the Hebrew of each of these words, Y H W H. Yahweh. It's the only explanation for why they wanted the sentence just altered a bit. Because they looked up there on the cross, they saw the sign posted above Jesus' head, nailed into that cross, and it said to them, Yahweh, and that was intolerable. Please change it. Say that He said this. And then the He said, we'll alter it enough that we'll we'll be cool. Yahweh. The Hebrew name for God. The great I Am. And here at the cross... We see number four, the parting of the garments. The parting of the garments, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. All Jesus owned on the planet, all of His possessions were on His person. All He had was what He wore to Calvary. All that they could possibly take from Him, they took. John points out here the precision of Psalm 22, verse 18. That's the prophecy he quotes there in verse 24. That they cast lots for my garments. And for my clothing. They they, they divided them up and for my clothing they cast lots. But something else is going on here as well. 
Something remarkable in this process, in this situation, with these robes, with what Christ is wearing. You need to go back now, just hours before this trial, at the Sanhedrin, at the trial of the Sanhedrin, chapter 26 of the book of Matthew. If you want to flip quickly back there, I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Jesus has already been through the trial before Annas, the previous high priest, and then the trial before Caiaphas, the reigning high priest or immediate high priest. And now he's before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, on that night of his six trials. And in verse 59 it says, The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. You know what I love about Jesus? Just a side note, he doesn't answer stupid questions. You can just yak on all day long and he's not going to answer if it's not relevant. And so they're asking the questions. Jesus is remaining silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you, whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, see that, that's a relevant question. And Jesus said, you said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. Then, the high priest... By the way, what a, how do you say that? He is shackled, surrounded by a venomous mob wanting his death, and he says, in a little while you're going to see this. Me, the right hand of the throne of heaven, coming in power. That's just crazy stuff, Right? Is it? Well, then the high priest, verse 65, tore his robes and said, He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the testimony. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Caiaphas, in a pompous rage, tore his robes and broke the law. His own law. Torah law. Because according to Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10, the high priest's robes were never to be torn. They were preserved. They were protected. They were delicately and gently cared for. Gentle cycle in the wash. I mean, they would not take any risk with the robes of the high priest as long as he was alive. But when the high priest died on the day of his death, the robes were torn into strips. The strips were then taken and used as wicks in the lampstands of the temple and the whole thing signified the closure of his office. Caiaphas, listen, Caiaphas was the last high priest ever to reign over Jerusalem, over Israel. Until Jesus came. And now Jesus is the only high priest. Caiaphas' robes were torn by Caiaphas himself, signifying he is out of office. His job is done. He's finished. He's through. His services will no longer be needed. But the robe of Jesus was not torn. The Romans gambled over Jesus' clothing, divided up, passed out among them, 
And we're told in Hebrews 7.23, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. His robes were not torn. His garments were gambled over, divided up among them. As prophecy said, would take place. Verse 26. Well, second half of verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women. Get that. His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother then, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now we looked at that last night as yet another sign or or, or picture here of the authority of Christ through all of this stuff. That as the firstborn son, he took authority over his mother to make sure she was taken care of and handed her over to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that? John. And in this process, it's interesting. Four women and one apostle. Apostle John was there. The four women, three Marys, and a sister. Mary the mother of Jesus. Mary the wife of Clopas. Mary Magdalene. And Mary the mother of Jesus' sister. Jesus' aunt. Who is she? Mark chapter 15 verse 40 names her Salome. Not Salami. Salome. I think she would forgive me that little pun. Salome is mentioned also in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56. Let me read it to you because there was some confusion about this first hour. Matthew 27, 56, which reads as follows. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So when we put the four Gospels together, we learn that Mary had a sister named Salome, who was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who were they? James and John. Which means James and John were Jesus' first cousins. Because Salome is Mary's sister. Alright, you with me on that? We put that together... And that makes James and John first cousins of Jesus. That He invited them to be among the apostles, His cousins. They had grown up together. They had known each other. What this means is that John the Apostle, writer of the Revelation, in which he was blown away by seeing Jesus in all His glory, was cousin to the same Jesus. At least in his earth suit. Of all the multitudes, of all the fair-weather followers, of all the disciples, of all the apostles, and even the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, it was only John and the four women that we see at the cross. Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary Magdalene and Salome, Mary, uh, the mother of James and John. This was deeply, deeply personal. And yet when John sees Jesus in the Revelation, 
It was a breathtaking, heart-stopping moment. Literally, John writes, Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. <clears throat> Flatlines. Because of the glory of who Jesus really is. So, why does John, in John 19, same John who sees Jesus in the Revelation, same John who is son to Salome, who's there at the cross, why does John include this little two-verse vignette at the cross? This, this reminder of this little authority of a firstborn son in a simple act of care for his mother. It's nice, but what's the relevance of what's going on here? Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And here's what we see happening. Get this. It is the pulling together of a family. The pulling together of a family. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And from that moment on, John took Mary as his own mother, even though his own mom, Salome, is standing right there. John would forevermore be responsible now, like a firstborn son, for two mothers. Mary and Salome both. The sisters. Mary would now become not just Aunt Mary, but a second mother to John. And John Corson calls this the secret of the blended family. I like that. The secret of the blended family. This is how families can be unified. How? At the cross. Let me just side note here for a second. If your family's a mess, you need the cross. If your family's a mess, the answer to the disunity and the dysfunction that's going on is the cross of Jesus Christ because it's at the cross that family is put together. It's at the cross that true family happens. Whether your family is distant or divided or dysfunctional, (laughs) welcome to the world. Every family's dysfunctional. Well, not mine. You haven't been around long enough. Young families, give it time, man. You're going to be as weird as the rest of us. And it doesn't matter if we're adopted or if we're step or if we're in-law or we're outlaw or if we're, if we're blended, chopped, crushed, pureed. It doesn't matter. At the cross, Jesus pulls family together. At the cross... Some say, well, blood is thicker than water. I say the blood of Jesus is thickest of all. The blood of Jesus draws people together who have no familial relation except going all the way back to Noah. The blood of Jesus draws together family like nothing else. We are family here because of the blood of Christ. As weird and distinct, as unique and and dysfunctional maybe as we are. And yeah, I'm talking about the Bridge Fellowship. Yeah, we got some dysfunction. We got human beings working here. You should see the staff. I'm kidding. I say that out of great love and affection. I love our staff. In fact, I think it's the best church staff on the planet, Les. We are incredibly blessed and a little weird. It's all there. But Jesus brings a unity, brings a family that where there shouldn't be one. If you feel like you're out there on your own, man, come into the family. Jesus unifies at the cross, pulls together at the cross. His blood is thicker than water. His blood. Because His blood does something no other blood can do. What's that? Forgives. 
And you might say, well, i gotta, I got to argue with you here for just a minute, Rick. Didn't Jesus say that He came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law? And I've said before, the mother-in-law thing, I get. The rest of it, I don't. <laughs> Didn't Jesus say that? Yeah. Matthew 10, 34. He came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Why did he say that? Because where Christ is rejected, relationships fall apart. Because where Christ is not at the center of things, and it may be your marriage. Hey, if you're having marital problems, the single greatest thing you can do as a husband and a wife is start praying together. Together. Put Christ at the center of Put the cross at the center, the ultimate sacrifice at the center of your marriage. If your family's all scattered, invite Jesus in to the mess. Because the truth is, where Jesus is rejected, relationships cannot last. When He is locked out of the house and the family, and then one person starts to follow Him, you bet there's going to be contention. There's going to be division. But where Jesus is accepted... When a family comes under the authority of Christ, He has this way of pulling us together when we might not be together otherwise. He creates a familial unity. Even out of the messes we make, man, the Romans drove nails through His hand, the Jews stood around condemning Him, and He looks and makes sure that His family is provided for. Mary, John, I want you to hang out now. I don't even know if they liked each other. She was his aunt. And yet they were brought together at the cross. It's beautiful. That's where forgiveness became a down-to-earth reality. At the cross. Forgiveness is what makes a dysfunctional family able to function again. Forgiveness is what takes the messes that we make and starts to clean them up. Ultimate cleansing. Ultimate healing, ultimate restoration was given at the cross. And if you want to try and find it outside the cross, good luck to you. Because that's about all you're going to have is good luck. Luke recounts Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 34, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Listen, Jesus makes family where there should be none. And I would just say to all of you, if you feel like your family is against you, if you feel like a loner out there following Jesus, you have a family right here. Plug in. We love you. Be part of what He's doing. God has a way of unifying where there should be no unity. And it began at the cross with Mary and John. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished... To fulfill Scripture said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, Jesus received the sour wine. Now stop there just for a second. Don't confuse this sour wine in the Gospel of John with the analgesic they tried to give him earlier. The anesthesia, if you will. The Matthew recounts, Matthew 27:34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. He's like, but gall. 
Gaul was a painkiller. Gaul was a numbing agent. Because as I told you before, the idea of the cross was not a quick death. And the Romans would provide wine mixed with gall, give it to the person on the cross to relieve enough pain that they could hang a little longer. That they could suffer a little more. So the pain could ultimately get worse. And then they gave them a little more gall to get them through. And then as they came out of the gall, the pain would be worse still. And it was a game that they played on the cross with this painkiller. But Jesus, don't miss this, would bear the full weight of the pain and punishment of our sin. He took no painkiller, no Advil, no Tylenol, nothing to help even ease the pain in the slightest. But here at the very end, he accepts this non-analgesic sour wine, fulfilling even more prophecy. What do you mean? Back in Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. His mouth was so dry, and the prophecy describes that situation. And Psalm 69, verse 21, get this, says, They gave me gall for my food. Which he did not take, did he? They gave it to him, but he didn't take it. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. It would be the last sip of anything Jesus would take before his death. And we come to finally now the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, but Jesus only spoke one word, Tetelestai. In the Greek, Tetelestai. Finished, done, completed, over. Jesus cried out. He doesn't say, oh, I'm finished. Woe is me. He doesn't say, I held out as long as I could, guys. I'm sorry I let you down. No. He said, it is finished. To Taylor's night, my job is done, completed, finalized. The mission, which had been conceived in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world, that Jesus had awaited and anticipated over all of the history of man, it was done. To Taylor's night. This is not Jesus giving up. This is a cry of victory. This is a statement absolute that it was finished. What was done? The answer to the pain and sorrow of this fallen world. It was given in that moment, in that cry, on the cross, once and for all, it's done. It is done. Tetelest die. Romans 6.10, the death that he died, he died once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 9.12, through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. My friends, it is finished. It is done. You can't add to that. You cannot take away from it. You can't improve upon it. Well, maybe if I just do one more good deed. doesn't matter. It's already done. 
everything necessary. The full payment made. There is nothing left that must be done. All our failures, all our disappointments, all our defeats and wrongs are done. Paid up. Finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. My friends, the two greatest sources of all the pain and terror and heartache in all the world, sin and death, are done. Well, but people still die. 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul writes, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's why there's death in the world. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. Done. Death has no power anymore. It cannot do what it used to do before the cross. It doesn't hold sway over anyone. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, does that mean then that all the sins of humanity are universally paid for? Yes. And no. Yes, they're paid for. But the question is, are they received? Do you receive, do you accept that the payment was made on your behalf? That's the issue. That's the only issue that remains for anybody. That's the line, the very, very thin line between lostness and eternal salvation. Is will you say yes? Will you receive the full and ultimate once for all payment on the cross to die of Jesus? It's done. You don't have to do anything. I've done it all. The work is finished. The reason for sorrow, sin, and death still exists. What is that? It's a lack of reception. Were the whole world in this moment to receive the sacrifice of Christ right now, we would be through. It'd be over. Jesus would come back and it would be taken care of because His death is sufficient for every last human being on the planet, past, present, and future. His death can pay for it all. Will we receive it? Will we accept it? There is nothing... I want to say this gently because if you consider yourself not to be a believer in Jesus this morning, let me just tell you there's only one thing that keeps a person or stands between a person and they're receiving the full payment of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You know what that is? Pride. Arrogance. That's the only thing that stands between you and eternal salvation. Well, how do you know that? Because it's the only thing that stood between me and eternal salvation. Well, it's great that he died on the cross, but I've got to have some part in this, right? I'm a self-made man, right? Have you received the finished work of Jesus for you? The day is fast approaching when, because of the cross, because of the cross, even death itself will be made null and void. Let me just read this to you. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, which says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. That's your option. 
What is? The finished work of the cross or your finished work? Which is never finished. You can be close, but unless your life's work brings you to absolute perfection, you're finished. The cross or your deeds, that's your choice. And what goes on from here is that death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that is the book that declares all those who accept the crucifixion, who accept the sacrifice, the tetelestai of Jesus on the cross, you accept that, your name gets written in the Lamb's book of life. And you are saved. And you will go into eternity with Jesus, heaven forever, hallelujah. But, if you would rather be judged by your deeds, anyone's name that was not founded in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's not my word. That's God's word. But you know that lake of fire was not created for you? Jesus said it was created for the devil and his angels. Not for you. Heaven. As for you, I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, so that I can receive you to where I am. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come receive you where I am, that where I am you may be also. That's his desire. That's what saw him all the way through the cross. It is finished. Will you accept that? Paid in full. The grace of Jesus.